All right. I am really torn here this morning because I got two messages on my heart. I, I, seriously, I've got, I, I, there's, I was up till real late. I, I'm on prednisone right now. Anybody ever taken prednisone? Yeah. That stuff will keep you up all night, man. I'm real productive. I, uh, two days ago, I had no voice, and I thought, oh, this is not faring good for the weekend. Uh, but they gave me some prednisone, and I'm back. But, uh, so I was just praying last night, spending some time with the Lord, and, and uh, really narrowed down to something. And then I got in this environment, and something else popped up. So I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to talk about what popped up real quick, and if we can get through that quick, we'll get to what I was going to intend to preach on. But what I really felt like here this morning as I stepped into here in worship, this, uh, let me just read you a passage. 2 Samuel chapter 11, 1 through 5. In the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. And so this was, a, this was a high watermark in David's rule. I mean, he was kicking Heine. Can I say that? He was kicking pagan Heine. He was, he, the, the boundaries of the, the kingdom were greatly expanding under David's reign. But David got comfortable with success. There, is, there are temptations on the way up to your calling. And there are temptations once you arrive. And they're two different kinds. And there are people who fail the test to get there and never arrive. But then there's other temptations once you arrive in the position that God has called you to. And you've got to pass those tests as well. David passed with flying colors on the way to the throne, but he failed once he reached there because he got comfortable. He, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He had lost that warrior's heart. So David, at the time of battle, at the time of year when most kings were going to war, Probably the fiercest warrior that was ever produced by Israel stayed at home. And we've got to keep that warrior's edge. The fact is, we are at war. We live in a battlefield and we are at war till Jesus comes. We take a leave of absence once He comes and until then we fight. We don't have time. Now, there, there are certain respites at time where we can take a break and we can go on a vacation. But even then, we've got to keep our edge and we've got to understand that we are at war and the that we cannot overemphasize the risk and the cost of this battle. That we are fighting for the souls of men. We're fighting for the souls of our kids and our grandkids and the generations to come. And so we've got to keep that warrior's edge. It says, verse 2, here's what happens when that happens in our life, like it did in David's. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And that was the beginning of David's entire life crashing down upon him. And it would cost him in generations to come. Literally generations were were set on a course and think the enemy was able to get into David's household because of that one decision. So David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. So then he saw, he inquired, and then he sent for. And that is the progression of sin. You know, Martin Luther is famous for saying, uh, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, the great reformer, he was famous for saying, you can't 
keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest. Sometimes we can't control what we see, but we can control what we inquire of and what we toy with and what we allow to make a nest in our head. And David, because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, when Jesus taught us, lead us not, he taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Part of the way to avoid temptation is be about the right things so you don't get tempted with the wrong ones. And because David was not occupied with the things he should have been doing, he set himself up to be enticed with the things he shouldn't be doing. And so uh, this, this thing of uh, boredom, this, uh, th- that stirred appetite, uh, I tell you, we've got to be so very careful in those times. That restlessness where David got up from his bed and that restlessness exposed him to something he should have never saw. And once he saw it, he should have went and prayed or took a cold shower. But instead, he called his servants in and said, go inquire of this woman. He was already toying with his mind. Uh, as you know, the, the, the story goes on, Second Samuel, uh, uh, in that same passage, where what he did is he set up Bathsheba's husband. He, got, he brought him back from the battlefield. He was one of David's mighty men. He wasn't even an Israelite. He was a Hittite. He was someone who had been spared and was brought, proselytized in and became an Israelite. And he was so faithful to David that when he came, David just under, under the guise was saying, I just want to know how the battle is going. Thinking that he, I mean, this man lived within eyeshot of the palace. And so David brings him home thinking, his beautiful wife, he's been at battle, he's been there for weeks, if not months. He'll go home and spend the night with his bride. And instead of doing that, he went and slept on the palace stairs. And David heard that and he said, what's going on? And he said, how could I go and sleep with my wife when my brothers are risking their lives on the battlefield? That was the level of integrity and commitment this man walked in. So David thought, okay, I'm going to get this guy drunk. And a drunk man will never deny himself his wife. But the integrity of of this man was such that even in a drunken state, see, some people make excuses. Well, I was on medication. I was, I, I had a little, you know, I'm telling you, the integ- out of the abundance of the heart, the life lives. And so this man's integrity, even in a drunken state, he went back out and laid on the stairs, slept the night. And so David then wrote a letter and said to the commanders, put Uriah at the front where we know he will be killed. Have everybody around him withdraw so he's killed. And Uriah, this faithful man of integrity, took that letter and delivered his own death, sealed death warrant to his commander. The commander read it, did that very thing, and he sent word, we're losing the battle. Boy, I'll tell you what, there was more in that phrase than anybody realized. Because David had opened the door for them to lose the battle. He said, we're losing the battle, and by the way, Uriah the Hittite is also dead. And David was happy to hear the news, because he wasn't concerned about his men. He had gotten into sin, And sin always turns you selfish. And so David was inwardly rejoicing. Okay, I'm off, I'm scot free. So what he did is he, he allowed his, uh, Bathsheba time to grieve, then brought her in, married her, and said, Oh, we had a premature child. And then we, then we come to this passage here, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Then the Lord sent to Nathan to David. When he came to me, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. So Nathan is a prophet, and he's going to come. He comes to David and said, hey, we got a problem in the kingdom. I need to to let you know what's going on. Or he said, 
He said there were two rich men in a certain town. One was rich, the other poor. Not, not two rich men. One rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now listen to this phrase. Verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan turned around and stuck his bony, prophetic finger in David's face and said, you're the man. And he said, you slept with Uriah's wife and then killed him to cover your sin. And because of this, the judgment of the Lord has come upon you. And the child conceived of this adulterous relationship will die. David actually pronounced the judgment on his own life. By saying, he shall pay four times. And if you tracked David's life after that, there was sexual immorality that decimated his household. His son Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Then, then uh, Absalom killed Amnon to be out of revenge. Then Absalom went on to sleep with all of David's concubines. I mean, this was just... And then he died. It was death and sexual immorality blighted his house. Now, let me read you one other verse. Ephesians chapter 6. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. It's, it talks about put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. See, Paul is saying you've got to have a mindset for warrior. Put on the full armor of God. You live in a battlefield. We don't have the luxury of saying, well, I'll, on the, day, the hard days I'll put my, battle, my armor on because there's days where it's too late. By the time you go to reach for it, you've already been taken out. So we need to live in that mindset. We really do. One of the dangers of a prosperous country like our own is that we get so used to the good things of life that we become lax spiritually. David didn't have his armor on, and he wasn't able to stand in the day of battle. So Paul says, put on your whole armor so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. This is an interesting word. It's a compound word meaning to travel amid. The word schemes. It's a Greek, in the Greek, it's a compound word, to travel amid, which is reminiscent of what happened to David. There was a, the, the enemy traveled on these pathways in David's life. And what I felt when I was just, just in worship, I just felt like there's people here that you've had breakthrough in the past, but you've been unable to, to keep that breakthrough. What you've obtained, you've not been able to maintain. And what's actually happened is there's become this cycle in your life where you get touched on Sunday expecting to lose it by Monday. And so it's, it's like, we live in this low level of Christianity. We get touched, but we never see the breakthrough in the generations of our family. And it's this very thing that happened in David's life. There, is, there are many scholars, I, I'm not a scholar, but I agree with those scholars, 
that David was most likely the result of an adulterous relationship his father Jesse had. And they, they, that is why it's believed, that's why Jesse did not invite David to the supper when Samuel came. When Samuel said, hey, gather your kids, gather all your sons, We're, I'm coming to you. This is like Billy Graham and the president, and one person comes to your house. And he leaves one of his kids out. Why? Because the last thing you want when a prophet arrives is the living, walking reminder of your illicit relationship. You kind of want to leave him, you know, you don't want him discerning anything. But he picked up on, and there's other passages when David said, in sin I was conceived. Somehow we've we reinterpreted that and said, well, what he's talking about is original sin. Well, then all of us were conceived in sin. But when we use that, that phrase today, when, I, when we say, oh, that child was conceived in sin, what we're saying is they weren't, the couple wasn't married. There was, there was fornication. Now there's forgiveness for that. But David is saying that I was conceived in an illicit relationship. You see, there was a generational pattern that entered David's life and David could have conquered that, but he opened the door for that to continue in the generations to come. And we've got to be so very careful. I know, when I got saved, uh, you know, I, I was a homeless alcoholic. I was living on the streets. I was raised in church, but I'd opened the door to alcoholism. My mother and father had gotten saved. There was alcoholism on both sides. They lived. I, I was raised in a very good home. But I rebelled and stepped out. And as soon as I started drinking, it's like I opened up a, a, an inheritance that was not good. And whereas I had buddies that had been drinking for years, as soon as I started drinking, that thing gripped me. I started drinking at 15, went to my first rehab at 16. I was just gripped by this thing. Well, what David, there was this, this generational flow of iniquity there are pathways that we can open up in our family. And yes, they're spiritual, but they're also psychological and sociological. What do I mean by that? It's the ways of thinking. It's the patterns of behavior. And sociologically, what I mean by that, it's the way we relate with each other in our homes. There's such a thing as someone called a dry drunk. You ever heard that phrase? A dry drunk. Man, that seems like a really miserable, you know. I'm not aspiring to be a drunk, but a, a dry drunk? That's, what, what is that? It's somebody who still acts like an alcoholic even though they're not drinking. They haven't broken the behavior patterns. And so that behavior, actually, those, those ways of relating with each other and the ways we think actually open the door and they disciple the next generation to believe and think that way. And so when we get touched on Sunday, we need to realize there's going to be tension on Monday. Because the new us, when, when Monday, the sun comes up on Monday, we're a new person. We got a breakthrough. But everything else in our life is going to try to push us back into that mold of the person we used to be. Even those who love us and even those who prayed for us to get the, the breakthrough on Sunday, are going to react to us as if we're the same person we were on Saturday before we got touched. Because that's the only person they know. And so what happens is if we're not prepared for the conflict and the tension, and we don't stand in that and press through, then what, what we end up giving up the ground to keep the peace. And so, so often we lose what we gained because we don't, 
we're not prepared for the fight and the conflict that's going to ensue. Now, I know I've talked about this in this church before, and, and it's not because I, I sense there's a real problem. I just, I had felt, I felt this morning that there's some of you that have been touched and you've, you've, you've almost expect that to just be, oh, I had a good experience, but it's not really going to transform me. And I'm telling you, it's a lie from the pit of hell. You just need to learn to steward the breakthrough because God wants you to go from glory to glory, not a high point and then the valley and just go up and down. He wants to take you up and up and up. But we need to learn to steward our breakthrough. There has to be a follow-through to your breakthrough. And so, and what, what comes into play here, you know, we talk about David being revisited by a traveler. I believe Nathan was calling out a spirit that had come to David. David was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he was restless, went up on his porch, and he saw that woman, he was set up by the enemy, and then there was a traveler that came and demanded a meal. And Nathan was saying, listen, buddy, you've got a whole bunch of wives. Not endorsing that. I'm just saying that's what Nathan was saying. He said, man, you've got a whole flock of sheep and cattle. But rather than satisfying those urges with the, the wife of your youth, you took another man's lamb. One that slept in his very arms. That's all he had is one. You had many. And see, we've got to be careful because there are travelers that travel those common pathways, those inroads that have been built generationally in our life. There's behavior patterns that we've created. And it's not, necessar not necessarily so that the patterns themselves are evil, but God has to disrupt them to take you to the next level. And if we don't follow our breakthrough by practical change, disrupting the behavioral patterns, disrupting the relational patterns, then we will, we will abdicate what we received on Sunday. The first time when you get touched in church, you, you know, what... what Fill in the blanks. Think back to some time where God really touched you. And then you come home and things are good for a few days and then you get angry about something. You get in a fight with your spouse or something happens. And all of a sudden, all that condemnation comes out. I see I'm no different. That's a lie. It's the attack of the enemy trying to pull you back into that old behavior. And that's where you need to make the decision. I'm going to repent quickly and I refuse to fall back into those old cycles. We've got to humble ourselves and admit it and get back out of that rut, because that's where the real breakthrough is established. It's not what you receive on Sunday, it's how you steward it on Monday through Saturday. And so we've got to break this. And so there is a psychological, a sociological, a relational pattern to this kind of dynamic that the enemy uses to get into families and just create the same dysfunction generation after generation after generation. One time I was pulling into our housing division. I can tell you right where I was. I was pulling in there and the Lord spoke to me very clearly. He said, I will not overrule relational dysfunction. I was like, whoa, Lord, there's no one else in the car. I'm the only one here. And what he was telling me is, you can cry out all you want for breakthrough, 
But unless you deal with how you relate with people and what goes on between your ears, God will not overrule your mindsets. Your believing determines your behaving. And so if we do not renew our mind, if we don't take care of that, if we don't confront those belief systems and really begin to work out our relationships, you will at best stay right where you're at. And so we are in a battle and the battlefield is between your ears and the ground that you're going to take is relational ground and it's between your ears. And and until you're transformed, the world around you will never be transformed. And every time you get a new touch and you are transformed in some measure by the Spirit of God, I'm telling you, the people around you will fight that transformation. I, I was, I'm, I'm in, doing a tiling project at my house. You know, it always takes longer than you thought. I mean, I, I can't believe how long this thing has taken. But uh, I'm doing it with this 72-year-old guy that works me under the table. This guy's a beast. He was over, he came over to my house early in the morning. We worked till late afternoon, and he threw his tools in his truck because then he was going home to drive all night to go fishing in Ohio. The guy's a beast. And uh, anyway, he was telling me about when he got saved. He was, he was a cantankerous dude. And one of his daughters said to him, they, they said, they got mad when he got saved, and they said, I liked you better as a drunk. Yeah. He said, really? She said, yeah, because at least I knew what to expect. See, he had disrupted the relational patterns. She didn't know how to interact with him. There are two sides to a relationship. I'm sure I've, I, I, I recollect sharing some of this before, but uh, when I worked at Teen Challenge, I worked there for 14 years, and uh, we used to have this, this analogy we'd use with the students about the canoe ride of life. You're paddling down the life through, you know, the river of life in your little canoe, and all of a sudden, some trauma happens on the right side of your canoe. We've all been through hard things. And what, ha- what tends to happen to us is we begin to lean to the left, anticipating the next traumatic thing that happens on the right side of our canoe. So then what do we look for when we want to get married? We look for a really good gal that leans to the right so we can balance each other out. And then we think we're functional. Oh, we're a real healthy couple. When in fact, we our dysfunction fits with each other. When I, when I met my wife, she, she was beautiful. She was at the prayer meetings. That's what caught my eye. She was beautiful. She was at the prayer meetings. God told me. He said, that's your wife. Treat her like she deserves. I thought, well, I better get to know her. And uh, that would have been kind of creepy. Hey, you're my wife. God told me. That wouldn't have worked. So I just, on the slide, just kind of got to know her. And uh, what I didn't realize, one of the things that attracted to me as I got to know her, she was beautiful, she was spiritual, she loved Jesus, but my unresolved issues fit very well with hers. I did not realize that. And so what happens is we're, we, let me just say that this thing of Prince Charming marrying Cinderella, the girl that lives among the cinders, is a fairy tale for a reason. Functional people are not attracted to dysfunctional people. Your relationships are actually a mirror of your emotional, relational health. So that's why you were attracted to the person next to you. Don't look around. (laughs) And so what happens is, in, in Christian marriages, what happens is one of them gets touched, and they sit up a little bit. 
And you know what happens to the other one? They're drinking river water. And they're thinking, wait a minute, sit back down. I was not attracted to the healthy you. I was attracted to the dysfunctional you. Because your dysfunction fit with my dysfunction. And when you get healthy, this is real uncomfortable. And even when we... Even when we're praying for a transformation in our spouse's life, we think we know what that's going to turn out like. We, we have these things we think we want to change, but there's also things that you didn't want to change that God wants to change. And so, we've, and, and so when you're the one that's being transformed and the spouse that has been praying for you is resisting that change, don't get angry at them. You do the same thing. But don't give in either. Don't get an attitude, but go low and stand your ground. And when you've done all, stand. I used to tell the Teen Challenge students, listen, you're not really changed until the people closest to you accept, expect the new you to come through the door. And as long as they're expecting the old you, you're not transformed yet. Because the last frontier of your transformation is your relationships. It's not that you're not sincere. But there's a question mark. Are you going to see this thing through? Will you weather the relational conflict to maintain your change? That is the question. I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of people who will not. They will surrender that ground and go back to the old dysfunctional way to keep the peace. Because in their estimation, they'd rather have momentary peace than really go to the next level with God. And I'm just telling you that there are a lot of people who lose what they gain because they're not prepared for the conflict and they will relinquish that on the backside. We've got to learn to govern our gains. We've got to learn to steward that. So there's a psychological and a relational aspect. Now, there was the traveler. There was a spiritual component. And that spiritual component in the Scripture is known as a familiar spirit. If you speak Spanish, you recognize the connection. Familia is family. Familiar and family are, come from the same root word. There are spirits that traffic in families. It's not a class of demon. It's a demonic strategy. Okay, So a familiar spirit picks up on this strategy and he examines family lines and he will insert himself and run along those pathways and continue the dysfunction for generation to generation. How many of you can recognize that in your families? I got both hands up. Seriously. I've got wonderful parents, but I see how some of those patterns that were before they got saved have still made their way down through the generations. And here's the, here's the scary thing. What we won't fight, our children will face. What we don't battle and overcome, our grandchildren will, our grandchildren will have to face. And so we need to be motivated. You can actually clean, you know, clear, the, clear the land for your grandkids. There's a reason Solomon went on to fall because of the 700 wives he married. 700 mother-in-laws. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> 700 wives. And he ended up worshiping their gods. What the wisest man that ever lived succumbed to that type of temptation. 
and open the door. Just, I mean, the, the history of Israel was just pains, painful and horrid because of sexual sin. David didn't, and Solomon wrote this. He said, it's the little foxes who destroy the vine. Remember that? You know, in Oriental cultures, little foxes signified familiar spirits. It's the familiar spirits that will eat the fruit of your vineyard if you don't conquer them. Let me, let me just give you a quick rundown on something here. This is, to me, it's very fascinating if I can find out where I have it here. Uh, Leviticus 19.31, it says, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Um, we're not going to get to the second message. Do not seek them out, and so make for yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. The word medium in the Hebrew is obot. O-B-O-T is what it looks like. Obot. It is used of the pit from which spirits are called up, the spirit of the dead, or as here, the necromancer. That's from the New American Commentary reference uh, uh, for 1931 of Leviticus. The Hebrew word translated familiar spirit, obot, or it's pronounced ovat, uh, translated medium in the NIV, or one with a familiar spirit in the King James Version, is it, it referred to a necromancer, someone who contacts the dead, the spirit of the dead. Now, hang with me here. Uh, the spirit of the those the necromancer attempts to contact, as well as the dwelling place of the dead, the realm of the necromancer is attempting to call the spirits from. The root word, ovat, comes from ab, the very first word in the Strong's Dictionary, and the Hebrew term for father. In the Septuagint, it is almost always translated as the word ventriloquist. So, as one follows the thread among these various ideas, the connection between the terms medium, familiar spirit, and even its correlation to the idea of father begins to emerge, giving light to this biblical concept. A familiar spirit grants influence beyond the grave. The necromancing medium serves as a ventriloquist giving voice to the deceased. But as a demonic spirit, it seeks to reinforce the negative elements of the family narrative, leveraging the influence of the patriarch and matriarchs in, in order to deceive. It reinforces the dysfunctional elements of the family system, keeping the generations in bondage to the sinful choices of its forefathers. A familiar spirit functions beyond necromancy, however. It serves as a vehicle for the familiar iniquitous patterns of the previous generations and relationships to be visited upon the present generation. Now catch this. They do this by enforcing the behavioral patterns of the family through internal and external tension, psychological and relational pressure to keep the peace, to maintain loyalty and the status quo. Breaking with the family in the areas of belief and behavior is viewed as disloyal, creating the tension of personal guilt and relational conflict. It is in this way that the familiar spirits perpetuate the dysfunction of previous generations, thus providing legal ground for the negative consequences to land. This tension must be consciously 
confronted and resisted to overcome the influence of these spirits. Familiar spirits are a part of every family's legacy because, let me, I got some, I'm supposed to be a gospel preacher, good news preacher, I got some bad news for you. There is no such thing as a completely functional family. Every one of us have a level of dysfunction in our family. And the best, the best case scenario is that we recognize it and disrupt it and say, no more. Not on my watch. I'm going to conquer these things and I'm going to give my kids a free, uh, you know, freedom to run in. I'm going, to, I'm going to make sure that we're relating in a healthy way, that we're, you know, all those kind of things so that we're not perpetuating this kind of behavior. And what that does is it breaks up the pathways, the relational belief systems that the enemy traffics on in our home. Does that make sense? And so we've got to confront this stuff. And if we don't, we end up being a bunch of Pentecostal people that have a bad name in the community because we got touched on Sunday and lost it on Monday. I grew up a good part of my life in Ottumwa. There had been a tremendous move of God in Batavia. Back when Pastor Tucker got converted under that latter rain revival. My dad pastored the church many years later. At one time, this town of 600 people was running 800 people. The revival was burning strong. Then they moved it to Ottumwa. And there's, there were, it were written up in the Des Moines Register. There were times where people would drive by, see a pillar of fire coming out of the church, pull over, get saved. It was an amazing move of God. And I did drugs with the grandchildren of the participants. Because while mom and dad were in the, in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, getting touched, the kids were out in the woods doing not good things. And so what happened is these underlying behavior systems, all this rot, because we're not honest about what's going on in our lives. We're not seeking out the help and confronting this stuff. And we succumb to the lies because if we were honest, we could find out that we can get some help. And that stuff isn't confronted. And so what happens is in a community, oh, that's that place where people really really got touched. But I'm telling you, I, I know they're... You know, I know what goes on behind the scenes. They may be in church on Sunday, but they're doing this other stuff. We give a bad name to the church. This has happened all over for decades. And so we've got to confront this stuff in our lives. We've got to be willing to break up these relational patterns. There's this beautiful little scripture in 1 John chapter 1. It says, Walk in the light as He is in the light. And then you will have fellowship with one another. And then the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There's a progression to this passage. Walk in the light. Transparency. Being honest. If you're struggling, you lay it on the table. Hey man, I'm I'm struggling. I was privileged to have a, a spiritual mom and dad that I could tell absolutely everything. And I did tell them absolutely everything. I mean, all the crazy thoughts I would have. And I, I can remember going to them, and I had these thoughts, what does that say about me? And they would just settle me. I remember Quimby, Quimby, Quimby and Sandra Collier, they were spiritual parents to me. Sandra's now with the world, one of the most prophetic women I've ever known. And I would tell them things. I remember Quimby telling me one time, David, and he's most gentle, man you've ever met. I've, I've seen huge men come in the room cussing him out, screaming. 
And he would just stand and hold his arms up, and they'd fall into his arms and just weep. He was just a, a small, gentle man. And he would say, David, when, sometimes when I'm praying for people, I'll be praying for a little old lady at the altar, and the thought will enter my mind, what would happen if I smacked her in the mouth? I, I couldn't believe that was coming out of Quimby's mouth. But I was so relieved because I have crazy thoughts. And see, what happens is I would own these fleeting thoughts as an identity. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, I'm, I'm normal. I'm not the only one. We've got, we've got to be honest about our struggles. So John says, walk in the light, transparency. Then you will have fellowship with one another. Transparency leads to intimacy. See, your freedom is only as deep as your relationships are. If you have shallow relationships, you will have a shallow level of freedom. And often the reason we, have, we keep people at arm's length is because we know what's behind, below that relationship line. That we, we don't want people looking down there. But if you really want free from what's down there, you've got to let some people in. I'm not saying you wear a t-shirt to church listing everything you struggle with. But you've got to find some people that you trust. So transparency leads to intimacy. If you walk in the light as He is in the light, transparency, you will have fellowship, intimacy with one another, and then the blood of Jesus will cleanse you of all unrighteousness, purity. And what John is insinuating is that there is a level of freedom that is inaccessible outside of godly relationships. If you hide your sin, it will continue. Sin grows in the dark. But if you're willing to find a group of people and lay your things on the table and say, man, listen, this is what I'm struggling with. This is, these are the thoughts I have. Often, it's not so much that you get the counsel you need as much as it is just getting out on the table, you realize how ridiculous that thinking is. I tell our people all the time, what sounds true in a monologue is exposed for the lie that it is in a dialogue. When it's bouncing around between my ears, it sounds so, you know, you know, I'm thinking all this crazy stuff. And I say it to someone else, and even I'm saying, well, well, that's whacked. That ain't true. But I just needed to get that out in the light. You ever had someone come to you and they start, you know, I need some counsel. And they, they do all the talking. And at the end, they say, thank you so much. You've helped me so much. You're thinking, I didn't say anything. They didn't need you to say anything. They just needed to get it off their chest and to see that objectively rather than have it bounce around in between their own ears. Often we recognize it when we get it out there. And so we need to break up these relational, the, 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 the thinking and the behaving. What you receive on Sunday must be followed up by transforming the way you think on Monday the way you relate, because I'm telling you, what our believing determines our behaving. Our relationships are a mirror of our relational health. And so when those things crop up in our relationships, that's an opportunity. It's like the little dashboard light that shines and says, the oil's glow, or engine trouble. You don't ignore that. You don't just click the, you know, snip the wires. Oh, I feel better. Then your thing starts, your engine starts smoking. And... So our relational conflict is simply an opportunity to address our own heart. And it may be that you're dealing with a very dysfunctional person, 
but how functional, how healthy is your way of relating with people like that? Do you accommodate that to keep the peace? Do you take on as an identity what they put on you? All of these things are very practical parts of discipleship. And so what we receive from the Spirit has to be lived out in our everyday relationships, our, our home life, our work life. And that's the real battleground. Years ago, it was probably, I don't know, seven, eight years ago now, it was, uh, the Lord, I kept hearing this phrase, give me 21 days in July. Give me 21 days in July. And I knew what that meant. Oh boy, here comes a fast. So I, I grabbed some of the intercessors and I said, would you, would you go on a fast with me for 21 days in July? And they said, yes, Pastor, we're with you. So we went on this fast and there's only two things I remember about that fast. The one thing is that there was a number of the Latinos in our congregation that jumped in and we broke the fast with this legit Mexican fiesta, man. I mean, we had some good food. By the time they left my house, my freezer was full of uneaten Mexican food. It was glorious. That alone was worth, that was a breakthrough. I'm kind of, you know, that alone was worth the fast. But this is the only other thing that I remember getting from that fast. I'm walking through my living room and uh, there, there was some history program on about Genghis Khan. And I heard them say something. They said, Genghis Khan conquered more land than any man who ever lived. It's really amazing. I went, went, went through a book on Genghis Khan following that. I mean, conquered. I don't know how these people. Man, you know, they'd ride horses and conquered huge, vast you know, continents. And uh, it said, but upon his death, his empire evaporated. And then it said this, because he was a great general, but a poor governor. And man, that hit me. And then the Lord spoke to me. And He said this, I have many wandering intercessors and homeless revivalists who have stories of great battles won, but have nothing to leave their children. Because we know how to war and get a breakthrough, but we don't know how to govern our gains. And the way we govern our gains is we confront those that poor thinking, those lies that we believe, and the dysfunctional ways we relate with those we love. And we can't get an attitude towards them and say, well, if you just get a breakthrough like that, hey, you, the only... Human nature. We get, we get touched one day and suddenly we're the expert. Well, you know, I've always seen this. No, we, we're, we're, we have 24 hours behind us. And we need to have grace. And in fact, the way God wants to bring the breakthrough to your loved ones is through you standing your ground. And in love, refusing to fall back into those old ruts of behavior and love them but say, hey, I love Jesus more than my father and mother, sister, brother, children, or land. When Jesus said, I came to bring a sword, I came to disrupt. The Lord spoke to me some time back and He said, I am the great disruptor. Kind of concerned me. But that is true. And so we've got to 
in love, we stand our ground and we hold what God has done so that we don't, we, we don't fuel the fire of conflict with having a bad attitude against the person that we were acting just like two days earlier. And suddenly we're sitting in the seat of judgment. When they didn't see what we saw on Sunday, they didn't get the touch that we received on Sunday because God wants to give them the touch through us and through the way we're going, to relate, we're going to love them into the new behavior. And the fact is, there are people who won't take the journey with us. I'm sure you've known, I've known people that, that have left their spouse. There's a young man in our church, two kids. He got radically saved and finally his wife said, I'm out. I don't want to live the Christian life. They had just built a new home. He said, you can have the home. They're divorced now. And he just keeps loving her and honoring her, loving his kids. But she wouldn't take the journey with him. And he didn't get bitter and you know try to fight her and make her life miserable. I hope they get back together. But he stood his ground and said, I can't go back to who I was. I'm going after you. love for you to come with me, but I'm going after Jesus. So I don't know why I felt that this morning. But I believe that all of us need to get our heads wrapped around this thing that when God transforms us, there's always going to be these invitations through tension to go back to the old person. To say, oh, that was, that was emotion. That was a good feeling. That was a good service, but now we're in the real world. No, this, the real world is the transformation that happens in the kingdom. And so, I want to encourage you that hold to what God does in your life. Be humble, love those around you, but refuse to go back. Jesus said, if you're not willing to forsake father, mother, sister, brother, for my sake. And he's talking about this very dynamic. We've got to allow that change to be established in our life. And I believe it's one of the keys to changing a city. When there's really transformed people, where people, they live different. Man, I'm telling you, when, when somebody gets saved and they live different and they keep living different and they keep going to a higher plane, it is a shining testimony to the rest of the community. Jesus is real. This thing is real. And that's what God's called each one of us to.